welcome back to Slightly Fox. And this month we're celebrating the life and work of a quintessentially English writer who died at the age of 100 in January. Ronald, or Ronnie Blythe, is still perhaps best known for his 1969 book Aikenfield, which chronicled three generations of friends and neighbours in rural Suffolk. That book was an instant success. It's never been out of print since. Other books, short stories, poems and essays all followed and Ronnie had long been regarded by many as the finest contemporary writer on the English countryside. So to celebrate his life and work, we'll be joined in a moment by two of his friends, also writers, one of whom is also his biographer. First, though, my name is Philippa Lamb, and Foxed editors Gail Perkis and Hazelwood are here at the kitchen table with me. Nice to see you both. Hello, Philippa. How are you? We're well, well, aren't we? We're bearing up. Um, We've got the summer issue has gone to the printers. Yes, it's a good issue. We always say that, I know, but but it is. I believe you. I read it every time, <laughs> and it always is. Up to our guests, Ian Collins and Julia Blackburn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I know you both knew Ronald Blythe very well. I'm going to refer to him pronoun as Ronnie. You tell me that's what he preferred. So, Ian, why don't you tell us how you came to know him? Well, I wandered down the farm track to his ancient house in August of 1988, wanting a forward to my first book on East Anglian art. Many people came to him asking for favours and uh, we sort of began mid-conversation because my grandmother had been postmistress in the village of Charlesfield in Suffolk which was largely the, the village on which Aikenfield was based and I never really left. Did so you get your forward? I did indeed so be careful about inviting me anywhere because I might not leave <laughs> and that became one of the defining relationships of my life. He became my mentor and a great friend and we had every Christmas together and in the early days, I looked after the house while he was travelling and then progressively uh, looked after him as he, as he became weaker until he died in January, yes. Yeah. Julie, you're a fellow writer, I know. How did you come to know Ronnie? I got to know him through Ian. Ian had written a review of my first, second book of Napoleon's Last, The Emperor's Last Island and said, I think that I'm going to take you to meet my friend Ronnie Blythe, who you might get on with, and... I can remember just this absolute sort of shock of coming down the long lane and finding this pocket of place that could have been set in 1900 and then this slight figure of a man who became a friend and who was particularly so as a kind of, at first he was a kind of mentor for me that he'd read manuscripts and say this is nice and this is wonderful and terribly enthusiastic always. He didn't say that's no good that bit. He emphasised the positive and that was the beginning of a friendship. Very generous in that way with his time. Tremendously generous. He fostered people who, if he recognised somebody as being a writer, he sort of jumped over onto their side. He didn't speak, you know, he didn't want to say, I've also done this, or I think you should do that, or when I. He just stepped over into the into the thinking of the person he was talking to in a way that was quite remarkable. Because there's nothing worse than somebody sort of imposing themselves mm, when you're yes. early days of writing. Mm. He wrote. Largely about what he knew, didn't he, as you say? I mean, he was born in Suffolk in the east of England, 1922, the eldest of six children, his parents, a farm labourer, a nurse. They lived in the sort of rural poverty. I think it's, it's quite hard for us really to imagine now, didn't they? It was desperate. Uh, his father was a stockman by the time Ronnie was born, from generations of farm labourers, initially shepherds, wandering across the Suffolk landscape from uh, the Blythe Valley in the northeast of uh, Suffolk, from which they took their name, and then spreading across Suffolk to end up in Acton, next to uh, Sudbury in the southwest corner. So they were absolutely Suffolk. His mother 
was absolutely London. She was born in the slum that was Covent Garden. Her father was a porter who also uh, made ballet shoes. She delivered ballet shoes to theatres, including to Pavlova, and uh, saw Pavlova dance, it was the highlight of her Good life. Gosh. And she just hated London because of all the things she'd seen, and she was desperate to escape. And she married Ronnie's father after the second meeting. How did they meet? They met when you, you, you said she was a nurse. She was actually a nursing assistant. Yes. They were always the lowest level. And her best friend nursed a gassed man from the Western Front. And this was George's brother, Tilly. Ronnie's mother went to, to see her friend in Acton. And then uh, this younger brother just had just come back from this terrible experience in the war. He was wrecked at 21. They both wanted to escape. And so they, they married each other and they were chalk and cheese. Mother was deeply <coughs> religious and gave Ronnie a love of um, the Bible, the King James Bible. She read it every day, and so it was, he loved the language and he loved the stories. Uh, father only read the local paper, and mother was absolutely teetotal, and father was a barroom person, so they okay. didn't have much to say to each other, and they had really only their poverty in common and their children. But Ronnie's mother... She was the big influence there, wasn't she? Because I think he left school at 14, didn't he? he but did. he was already a big reader by then, which when you th- in many ways surprised me, coming he, from that background. Yes, well, it came from the Bible, and then it came from uh, libraries. There wouldn't have been a Ronald Blythe without the library service. His mother, they were actually very distanced later on, uh, because she was a very forceful person, very deeply religious, in, in, in a way that uh, Ronnie was deeply spiritual. He, was, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a dogmatist at all. Uh, mother joined the Plymouth Brethren, and so stood on street corners. They were evangelists. That wasn't Ronnie at all. He loved the poetry and the, the language and the atmosphere. How many children were there altogether? There were six. Ronnie was the eldest. Mm. And then, so there were four sons and two daughters. But Ronnie always stood apart. I mean, from the start, I think. He was very watchful and very listening. Well, he was a changeling or an alien. He just didn't fit in with this, into this world. He was in his own head and he escaped by walking and it was it was exploring the countryside which meant so much to him and this wonderful richness of countryside within the Great Depression. So it was the farms were all wrecked but around them was this wild, wild profusion and sort of the quantities of birds we can't imagine now. It was it was it was a paradise in that sense. And wildflowers. He became a botanist just by looking. So there was this great richness and this great hardship all rolled into one. Yeah, I mean, un- understandably, because his parents wanted him to take up a trade, didn't they? They did. He wasn't doing that. It wasn't so much that his intelligence wasn't noticed, it was thought to be an impediment because he was in a dream world. And it was always, you know, buck your ideas, uh, wake up. Earn and a wage, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, earn a wage, yes, exactly. He wanted to be a painter initially without telling anybody. He was very smitten with Gainsborough, who came from Sudbury. And then that fell away and he wanted to become a writer and he couldn't tell anybody that either. Not even his mother. Maybe especially not his mother. Uh, she was very protective of him. They all were. The younger siblings were protective of him. They thought he was fragile in a way he wasn't. He had steel in him. He ended up in the army. He did. Which seems incredibly but, unlikely, Well, Gunnar Blythe, yes. Uh, well, I suppose conscription. He was conscripted, yeah. He was so used to hiding. I should also say that he was gay. And so he was used to hiding himself, his true nature, while actually being completely comfortable with himself at the same time. There was no shame in him, nothing negative. He was completely content in his own skin, but he had to um, be private. Yeah. So he was a bookish person, he had to be private about that. He was, he was gay, he had to be private about that. And he was a complete and absolute pacifist. Uh, he had no aggression, he couldn't hurt a fly, literally. 
but he was so used to hiding himself he couldn't tell them he was a pacifist so he, he got drafted and 18 months later he was out and he, he didn't talk about this he never talked about his poverty either he, he didn't complain he didn't want people to know so he never talked particularly about being in the army and he just stonewalled it but towards the end I asked him pointedly and he said well I suppose in the end I was invalided out in a way so I think there was some sort of breakdown yeah. or certainly some sort of recognition that it just wasn't going to happen. He couldn't, the wrong temperament. He, he, he yeah. couldn't, couldn't fight. And so he left without any repercussion. He, he, he wasn't jailed. He must have been ridiculed. Yeah. Was he overtly a conscientious objector no, at that time? No, this is the point. He, always, he had amazing manners and he always wanted to please people and he never said no, ever, as far as I'm aware. Did he ever say no to you, Julia? Never said no, no, no. So he, he did his best to fulfil other people's expectations, but it was just hopeless. Yes. I think, I think there's that, that Ian has at home this pencil drawing of him, mm. which must be shortly after he's left the army, mm-hmm. I would imagine, which is quite extraordinary. I wouldn't have believed for a moment it was Ronnie Blythe, yes. but he's got this kind of otherworldly, sensual, absence-while-on-duty look yes, about absolutely. him. And a very sort of voluptuous look about him but without putting it on yes and without being embarrassed about who he is but but belonging to another race of beings altogether and also looking really vulnerable terribly vulnerable and you just fear for that person yes Yes. difficult life which actually wasn't true did he go back home he did and they had the kind of poverty the Blythes which looked to escape via a council house all his childhood that was what his parents aspired to and they finally got one and this six children no longer had to share one bedroom but Ronnie always shared a bed with his next brother until they left home in their 20s. So he came out and he worked as a librarian didn't he in Colchester which is nearby? He did that was his rescue. This Uh, is the early 40s? It's 1943. Yeah. He answered a job advertisement and it just saved him and it was for a reference librarian across the border into Essex. And this is where his self-education blossomed? Uh, yes, he'd been doing it all along, but mm. particularly there. He just read and read. Just opportunity read all around yeah, him. Yes, he yeah. read everything. And he taught himself French, he taught himself Latin. He was immensely erudite. It's just the definition of autodidact, isn't yeah. it? It's Completely. amazing. Yeah. So Completely. he had no teacher who'd inspired him? or He had a couple of teachers who'd, who'd recognised him as something set apart. And one teacher in particular had, had, had lent him um, lots of books. Mm. But it was mostly within himself and... So I started writing his biography about four years ago and I went through a long period of feeling angry about the opportunities denied to him because there was an esteemed grammar school in Sudbury which went back to the Middle Ages and there was no way that Ronald Blythe was going to that school. Or cost of the uniform, if nothing else. Yes, yes. I think to go back to that autodidact thing, I think that that it it was his saving to be an autodidact, to not have anybody telling him what somebody was writing about. And what he had, which was so interesting, is that whether he was talking about John Clare or Blake or more modern people, friends of his, it didn't make any difference. The living and the dead distinction didn't really bother him. But he had it always that he spoke about writers as if they were close friends. Yes. Mm. And that had a kind of intense quality about it that he... You know, that you almost expected John Clare to say, you know, got any tea, that yes. it had that feeling that he was he was all the people he, he read yes. 
became his friends. That's it. And, and that was the autodidact particularly quality Claire. of him. Particularly John Clare, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. He didn't seem to also have any of that, I mean, with some autodidacts, there's sort of chippiness, isn't there? Yes. No chips. having done it themselves. But Absolutely he, none. Uh, he no. apparently didn't have no. any of that. No. And, and also, he, he, I think apart from the first novel, he hid his references so cleverly. His, his research was completely subsumed into this original poetic mm. prose. He was absolutely himself. He mm. was gentle and steely. Mm. So he works at this library for quite a long time, doesn't he? Right mm. through to about 1955? Uh, that's right, the end of 1954. And he's, uh, he's rescued from the library by Christine Nash, who uh, was the wife of John Nash, the painter. She had been a painter, but it was the era where you couldn't have two painters in, uh, in a marital home, and it was clearly going to be him who was the <laughs> painter. Also, she had glaucoma, so she couldn't ah. actually see. And she tried to be a writer when that, that hadn't worked, and she spotted Ronnie. And she wasn't going to let him mould her away behind the inquiry's desk. So that's library. where she met him, at the library? Because I was going to say, their social paths would not have crossed otherwise, No, she went to they? borrow a Mozart score, and then the next day she went back to borrow him. She transformed his life, didn't she? transformed she? his life. By this point, he'd had huge influence. Uh, the poet called James Turner, who was a guru, but it was Christine who really was the more effective help, and she was also resolute. Ronnie said that Christine was the kind of woman who made sure that you wouldn't plunge out of your depth before she pushed you off the diving board. <laughs> she had a gift for making cautious people momentarily incautious when it was absolutely necessary. So she pushed him to take risks. Yes, she pushed him completely. She she and John had lost their only child, a boy, in a car accident. And I think it's pretty clear that Ronnie was a substitute son, although none of them could actually say that. And she just nurtured him. And she said, uh, you have to leave this job, comfortable as it is, because you're a writer and you you won't do it here. And his blood mother was saying, well, just do it in the evenings, dear. (laughs) Christine said, no, don't do that. So she got him a place by the sea... And she went to him and said, I've got you a five-month lease on a house by the, by the North Sea. This was Aldborough, was it? Yes, North Thorpe Ness, just north of Aldborough. Uh-huh. And you are going to write there. You are leaving the library. And he did what he was told. And uh, he worked out that if he cashed in his pension, he could live for 18 months on £3 a week. And the rent was £1.50 a week. <laughs> but he was so frugal. He never spent yeah. all his life. It was the fear of the workhouse. Although it was a very lonely time for him, a very difficult time. He made his way immediately. He started selling short stories uh, while working on a novel. What sort of short stories? What about? All kinds of, all kinds of things. Uh, country life, of course, because he he, that's what he knew. And he sent them to the New Statesman and uh, the London magazine, and then to magazines in France and Italy and New York. And he always sent postage stamps to cover the rejection slip, <laughs> the cost of the slip. <laughs> right. And they never came back checks always came back but he thought that was just what he did to make money while working on his opus which was this novel and that actually wasn't the way it was I think the novel was less important than the shorter things as it turned out he describes it sort of very well doesn't he in the the time by the sea the sort of bleakness of Mm. you know that coast and having you know walking alone and by the sea and so on it's it's a lovely well, then he sort of it became a sort of novel in itself because he, he, he was starting this novel in the style of E.M. Forster because he didn't quite have the courage to have his own voice. And then he's, he walked into Albra and out of the snow appeared E.M. Forster himself, which was incredibly unsettling because he thought, oh, my goodness, he's going to come and find me out. <laughs> How did they actually meet? 
We don't know how Forster found out that he was living there. Ronnie didn't like to ask him. They just passed each other in the snow. But when Ronnie got home, there was a patron of Pocketbook under the door saying, Dear Mr Blythe, if you are free this evening, we would like you to come for a drink. And wow. He, and so Ronnie went with incredible trepidation because he didn't want to be discovered in that way. He wanted, he wanted to find himself. But suddenly he was exposed in the first week by his god. Ronnie stood out. He had a charisma about him. He was very handsome. I think there was a queue at the inquiry's desk in the in the reference uh, section uh-huh. uh, just to talk to him, and he had, he 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 was noticed. I mean, he is remarkable. So presumably, he went. He went, and it was rather bewildering and disturbing. And he was actually indexing a biography of his aunt, and he wasn't too hot on indexing. But Ronnie from the library knew all about indexing, so Ronnie finished the indexing for E.M. Forster's biography that evening, but still felt that he'd failed some kind of test. He was actually really cold and he was hungry. And uh, when he finished this, this task, Forster said, well, we eat at lunchtime. Oh, great. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I'll fetch sherry. And Ronnie was a lifelong devotee of sherry and biscuits. And Ronnie said he was absolutely starving and cold. <laughs> so uh, suddenly this working class young man is rubbing shoulders with Forster, with Benjamin Britten. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is remarkable. Yes. That, that particularly, I mean, it would be remarkable now. And it was really remarkable then, wasn't it? You think about social divide. It was. On the other hand, artists are outsiders, aren't they, in a way? Yes. So I think yes. that was... But also, they were all gay as well, so presumably... They were gay, yes, and, that... and criminal. Mm. They were all criminals until 1967, yes. when homosexuality was legalised. So they shared that, and they, they all knew that. about hiding. Yes, a they bit knew about who hi- they were. It, it, it was, there's a lot about hiding. Uh, Ronnie was private without being secret, I'd say. Would you think that's right, Julia? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a sort of funny thing that you know all his life. I know a lot, curiously, more about him since he's died, and I've tried to sort of look into aspects of his life to think more about it. And when I knew him, that very often he presented this kind of mirror that one knew more about oneself. Yes. But he kept himself distant. But then you got little tiny sideways glimpses or you could see him in the sense that you looked at where he lived and how he lived and watched him. So you did to him what he did to the world and then you began to build up a picture of him. That's it. And people thought that his writing was confessional. Well, it is on a certain level, but there's so much of him held back. Yes. He wasn't a man with ego, was he? No. Maybe that's and the I secret. Think, of I think it, that's yes. a great gift for a writer. It's not, probably I think why ego he, gets in the way. He probably so made many, him live to be a hundred as yes. well yes. without an yes. ego. He had so many gifts. He had no ego. He had no anger. Yes. He had no bitterness, no regret, mm-hmm. no fear. He had philosophy. He was. He absolutely knew that there was life and there was death. Well, Julian and I have been talking about his faith and whether he actually believed in afterlife. We're not even sure he did. No. Um, well, it's like that lovely John Clare thing, that last verse of the I Am. When I met him, he said, you've got to read John Clare's poem, I Am. And that has this last verse where he says what he longs for, John Clare saying, I don't know who I am, but I long for. And he longs to sleep as I in childhood sweetly slept, untroubling and untroubled where I lie, the grass below, above the vaulted sky. Marvellous. And I think that was his, that was his religion. As yep, it were, absolutely. it was just that that letting go within yes. the natural world. Yep, but there yes. is a bit that we were talking about, Ian and I, that although he was receptive, I had a very curious sort of distancing from him when my husband died in 2013. And I went to see Ronnie to sort of say, you know, gosh, this is grief. 
and loss. And he said, absolutely without apologizing or without saying, this is awful what I say, but he said, I can't help you because I don't have the experience of love. So I don't know what it is to lose somebody who I have loved. That's quite an admission, isn't it? It's quite a... And he didn't say it dramatically. It was to do with... That was how he put it, I think, wasn't it? He said he'd never been in love. He'd never been in love. And he'd never... So he'd never loved anyone enough to mourn for them. Yes, yes. And I found that a tremendous shock. Although it was with no... There was absolutely nothing of malice or of... No, just honesty. It was honesty. But I sort of felt like saying, oh, well, thanks very much, Ronnie. I think I'll be going now. That was yes. lovely to have the lunch, you know, because it was, it was just so startling because you presume that everybody has y- known yeah. the grief yes, of love. Yes, shocking. Yes, and yeah. shocking. Yes. But that detachment, that, that it, was key for him, wasn't it? I mean, he was an observer and a chronicler of others' It's as if he almost didn't lives. have, because of the non-ego, maybe yes. he needed an ego to love. Maybe. Mm. That's maybe what it yeah. is that you know. Also, he had this overriding desire, determination to write and he wasn't letting anyone get in the way of that. So there was a certain ruthlessness there had to be with what he what he had already overcome. Yes, didn't he once say that he, he'd never live with anybody because he, he would have been the one to end up washing the washing socks? The socks exactly. mm-hmm. Oh, did he say yeah, that? Yes, he did. He did. Yes. And if Julia, just to go back to the Clare, which was really apposite, I think, um, Ronnie had so many benefits. One of them was that he slept sandly all his life. He just wore himself out during the day. He wrote all every morning. He gardened in the afternoon, and he socialised a bit in the evening if there was anyone to socialise with, and read. And he also had this amazing good health. He was never ill. We had to introduce him to the doctors when he was 95. <laughs> they couldn't believe he existed, and he couldn't believe they existed. So, that is amazing. Yes, and they gave him his first paracetamols, and he, <laughs> so they, they were binned. And he opened the sherry bottle wow. and uh, <laughs> said, I'll stick to the sherry. And right towards the end, this lovely carers, who I think I hope we'll talk about later, one of them said, Ronnie, we have some morphine. Would you like some morphine? And he said, no, dear, paracetamol, just the one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, going, going back to the, the 60s, as you say, he started with short stories. What's he writing then? I mean, he's editing as well, isn't he? Yes, he was a publisher's reader. He, d- he discovered Edna O'Brien, uh, The Country Girls. He was also scooped up by Benjamin Britten to become a secretary for the, fe- for the Orbe Festival, which I think it must have been a sort of disaster because he was excellent at editing the programme and doing the pr- programme notes, but, but he, was all, he couldn't say no. So they suggested it, and he said, all right. And also the prospect of a little wage was tempting because he was always expecting poverty. So he did that for a while, then fled because he was being taken over. And managed. And Sounds managed. like he's being managed a bit. He, his great friend there was Imogen Holst, who, who he adored. But she said once to him, the festival is everything, isn't it, darling? And he thought, well, <laughs> actually not. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> I think it was interesting that he was, he was as good a friend with women as he was with men, wasn't this he? This is important, Yes, I think. it is important, yeah. that, that he just went for somebody's mind. If he liked their mind, it didn't matter who they were, it could also be a yes. child. Yes, he loved a creative mind, so yes. children he adored. Yes. He loved visits by young people right to the end, because he was one himself. He loved everybody, actually. He saw good in everybody. He saw God in everybody. Except in his cat. I always think he never saw God in his cat. Well, he, he always wanted a, a cat, but he was oddly dismissive. Disappointed in the cats that he well, had. Well, he, 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 he thought nature should take its course. He thought we lived yes. and we died. So the cats, he wasn't uh, taking them to the vets ever. So there was a vet who lived at the top of the road, and he would come in and see the cats ailing in a way that Ronnie wasn't noticing. So he sort of smuggled a pill into the cat food. But Ronnie just didn't believe in meddling. 
I think the cat did believe in a bit of Well, exactly, <laughs> even with nine lives, exactly. Yes. Ronnie had seen so much death, so his school friends had died and his father had buried them. So he, he, he wasn't sentimental. No. Uh, and he also wasn't, this is a very important point, he wasn't nostalgic. He couldn't possibly be having seen what he'd seen. He just wasn't. Well, that, that brings us very beautifully, actually, to Aikenfield, doesn't yeah. it? 1969, he publishes it. Portrait of an English village. It's lightly fictionalised, isn't it? This account of life in a Suffolk village. Yeah. And it runs from 1880 to 1966. Mm. Tell us about that, because I, I read that actually for the first time a couple of months ago in preparation of this podcast, and it knocked me over. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Well, it's the form that he had made his own by then. He'd done it earlier in a book called The Age of Illusion, and it was a series of essays. Ostensibly, each one an interview. He had a perfect recall for dialogue so most of those people are amalgamations they all have different names uh, which he found on tombstones although that book was wildly successful it was spotted that it wasn't straight oral history and so he was actually attacked by the purists and he was told that people don't talk like that and it was also about him it was a kind of memoir in a, in a strange way so did people think he'd made his local voices too articulate yes it was too edited I mean, that was just a sort of an undercurrent. It was mostly a claim. Uh, the book was wildly successful in the States. Paul Newman wanted to film it. The John, actor. John, yeah. John Updike loved it. It was a huge seller, and it was a school text. But, as it, again, people hated it. There was a farmer who bought it from uh, Liverpool Street Station, and before he got to Ipswich, he'd thrown it out the window because he said, well, that's not the Suffolk I've ever known. Farmers come across quite badly, don't they? They do, yeah. And that was one thing that disturbed Benjamin Britten. Um, he thought that, he, he said to Ronnie, you, you're not against the farmers, are you, Ronnie? And Ronnie said, how could I be? The farmers also had it bad, especially the tenant farmers had it terrible. But it is the perspective for really of the bottom of the pile, where Ronnie came from. I was rereading bits of it last week, and there's a long section with a man called Leonard White, who's about 70, who was a farm worker, who, like Ronnie's father, goes off to war. Leonard um, Thompson, sorry. Oh, beg your pardon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leonard Thompson. Yeah. Um, he goes off to, to war and is at Gallipoli, and you know, finally comes home having seen some terrible things yes. and the poverty and the work yes. he describes and the I mean it's unbelievable. He says the most devastating thing in the whole of Aikenfield, which is that he, he goes to Gallipoli to get away from Suffolk and he has no idea what he's going to, he's a teenager. And he arrives at Gallipoli and he sees a marquee. Oh, yes. And he oh, and he thinks, Oh, village fate, village fate, there'll be flowers and vegetables and uh, he opens the flap. And it's full of bodies, mm -hmm. lines and lines of bodies. And he said, nobody had told me about this. He said, the most devastating line, and I thought of Suffolk, and for the first time it seemed to me a happy place. Is this yes. the first essay in the, in the in yeah, book? Yes, yeah, that's the thing. I read yes. that, yeah. and I was so yes. forcibly yes. struck by it. I think yes. it is the most powerful one for me in the whole book. Yes. And it made those points about rural poverty in the sense that the boys joined the army before they were conscripted because they wanted to eat regularly. Yes. Mm. You know, and and escape. Things, yes, escape. and all the things we don't think mm. about. That particular essay, the total absence of self-pity. Yes. Was he commissioned to write it or did he just... He was, yes. He, he was. was. And he did it as, a, as a, the next task. He had no idea it was going to take off like that. And in fact, he was taken aback and not altogether delighted mm. because it became this thing that had its own momentum and overshadowed everything else. Mm. But I wonder if the person who commissioned it quite understood what they were going to get because, I mean, the, the mm. themes... Some of them are very dark, though no, they're no not doubt. treated in a dark way. I'm talking about things like incest, mm. the neglect of old people, old people, basically left to die in cupboards. In you cupboards, know, yeah. it's, 
it's ruthless in yes. its in its observation of what actually yes. happened. It's not prettyfied, yes. is it at all? Uh, and the grave digger at the end, and and mm. people wake up during their funeral services because they just yes. had a bad oh turn. They weren't yes. actually dead. Oh lord! Oh, yeah, so, think about how yeah. many people might yeah. have been yeah. buried yes. weren't actually yes. dead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so yes. there's a lot of shock throughout that book. But we mustn't give the idea that it's all hardship because within no. it there were beautiful things. Mm. Ronnie once said to me that he wasn't nostalgic for the world that had been. He just wished the farm workers could, co- could come back, but as their own masters mm. and not as serfs. There's a wonderful um, section with a woman who's a Samaritan. Mm. And when you read the introduction to the piece, she's obviously sort of middle class and comfortably off, and she does the flowers in the church. And you think, oh, yes, you know, this is a lady bountiful. But actually, she's a Samaritan. Yeah. And spends her time just listening to people with troubles. Yes, and then the lady of the manor and the servants had to turn their faces to the wall when she passed. Not only did they not talk to her, they couldn't look at her. Yes, I was amazed. I had not come across that in literature of the time at Mm. all. Mm. Her own staff, Mm. gardeners and the rest of the maids, never Mm. saw they had to look away when Mm. she came. Mm. Well, the the Samaritan is the antidote. Antidote to that. that. And And the magistrate. The midwife as well. Yes, and the midwife. I love the midwife. The school teacher. Yes. Yes. Was the midwife the one with the two husbands that she'd lost? There's one of them where she talks so... So sweetly about the two lovely men she'd been married mm. to who died. Yes, yes. And it's made into a film by Peter Hall finally, in the early 70s. Yes. So Paul Newman didn't work, but finally <laughs> Peter Hall, who was a station master's son from Suffolk, just absolutely fell in love with this book. And he was determined to film it. And Ronnie said it's actually unfilmable. Yes, he said no, didn't he? He said no. With, so yeah. Ronnie then uh, wrote a new screenplay, given the atmosphere of, of Aikenfield, but with a new story, really. And Ronnie played the vicar. Yes, he actually guested in the film. Yes, he he was the vicar. (laughs) A cast of completely untrained actors, local people. When it when it aired in 1974, simultaneously on television and in cinemas, it was watched by almost 15 million people. But it's a period piece Mm. now. I mean, the differences between then and now are greater in a way than the differences charted in that book. It was just before that vast industrialisation of agriculture. It was this connectedness to place that Ronnie loved. He loved community and rootedness and people being able to trace their ancestors back and knowing all the fields. He loved to know each field and each hedge. And that was lost after the 60s. I mean, it's if you go to Aikenfield now, Charlesfield, you wouldn't recognise it. Like yesterday, driving to Bottomgombs to mm. go through the landscape, and it's awful. But then you turn off on his track yeah. and go down, and time and goes back again. Vroom, yeah, exactly. Back. So Bottomgombs was this wonderful house that John and Christine Nash lived in. That's right. And when Christine died in 76, Ronnie moved in, didn't he, to look after John? To look after John. He'd... It, it had been his effective home for a long time. He'd, he'd, it was his refuge when things weren't going well. And she said that she wanted him to have the house. And then when she died unexpectedly, and Ronnie went in to look after John for 10 months or so. And then, uh, John said, I'm leaving you the house, dear boy. And he said, but what will you do down here all alone? And uh, Ronnie said, I'll look after your garden, John. Yes. And he wrote The View in Winter, didn't he? Reflections on Old Age. It's such an important book. Mm-hmm. It could be his most important book. Again, it's the form of the essays, the collected essays, which build into something so powerful. And it's partly, well, it's partly his grandmother, who lived to be 91 and outlived three husbands. And it's partly John Nash. And it's this great mystery of old age and what it means. And he talked about it as another country. 
and he hated the Simone de Beauvoir book on, I think, the death of her mother, which was okay. so bleak and dark and hopeless. And Ronnie thought, it's just, it's just not like that. So he wanted to give, as he always did, as a, a more rounded and more positive approach. And the amazing thing was that he completely bore out all that positivity in his own life. Yeah, I was. there's a lovely video on YouTube, actually, from about five years ago, where he talks about his life. And I watched a lot of those. They're, they're lovely. He says in one of those, he was horrified by the language people used about old people mm. in medical circles, that mm. the whole thing just became so process-driven and prosaic and, and harsh. Yes. He has a lovely bit of saying, if you get really old, then you're already, as it were, dead in life, and so it's not a difficult transition. Yeah. And not in a bad way dead in life, but you know about death. It's a very seamless movement yes. from the one to the other. And he found it all fascinating. Yes. He found dying fascinating. Yes. So, uh, Bottom Goms, we're going to play a, an extract from his writing in a moment, but just describe Bottom Goms, this wonderful house for well, us. Well, it's a yeoman's longhouse, a farmhouse from about 1600, and then it was turned into a double dweller, and then it collapsed in the Great Depression in the, from the 20s and so it lost all its fields and it was just down to two acres in this hollow, this very sheltered spot with its own spring and in fact when the Nashes found it in 1943 the stream still went across the floor of, of the, the house, of, the, house, of yes. the dairy in this Tudor idea of a house with running water it was just that, it was a, <laughs> a stream <laughs> built yes. over a stream so they just uh, diverted <laughs> it round the side of the house but it continued to supply the water for the house until today it's still doing it it had a kind of spartan splendor i'd say they had a great sense of style and a great sense of model they smoked like chimneys and they were always cold so it was actually muffled uh, don't let the heat out dear and so ronnie th- thought he couldn't breathe there sometimes because mm. it was so fuggy but it had a magic about it. You see it when you go in, even yesterday, that the floor, these, these wonderful brick the floors, brick floor. it's like going into life for church or something. It has yes. this quality. And I remember when I first saw him, another of the things that stayed with me was that he'd sort of say, oh, look, dear, you know, the, the, the way the floor goes there. Mm. Do you know the Hardy poem, Here the Dead Feet Walked In? It's just like that. And yeah. you, in, instantly yeah. you see that's what he yeah. loves about it, that you see 400 years of footsteps. Yes. When, when he inherited the house, his friend James Hamilton Patterson, the, the writer, came to help him get it in order. And James did a really good thing because he forced Ronnie to make it his own place and not a place he was curating for not a shrine. the Nashes, exactly. Mm. Mm. So he actually burnt relics of the Bloomsbury group. With Ronnie complaining yes, bitterly. Yes, saying, Dora Carrington sat on that chair, don't burn it, don't burn it. And, uh, and so they sort of stripped out a lot of the dampness and the decay and the house was partly rebuilt and it became much more comfortable actually but it was still very basic you can say that again yes yes Yes. it was it was defined by what wasn't there in so many ways no washing machine as i said earlier no kitchen appliances really no Uh, well there were saucepans Okay. An, are they appliances? Not really. <laughs> no, no, they're not. <laughs> uh, a few yes, I noticed it um, yesterday of uh, that thing of going into the downstairs loo. Yeah. Um, there's no basin. Well, you peed in the garden. You know, yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. When the churches got all hooked up on bringing in loos into the interiors, Ronnie said to me, well, I'm just going to do what I've always done and pee in the hedge. But, <laughs> it's not very well for him. Yeah, exactly, have, that's true. Women that have is more very true. These things. That is true. <laughs> wonderful story of when you were leaving the one time quite recently leaving yes. and you thought that he was waving at the door he was and actually peeing like, he was doing a pee yeah, exactly. and not a wave exactly <laughs> yes he never looked back he never waved to you no, uh, and no. finally I thought he was waving <laughs> but so no. I waved back and then I stopped and carried on <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
Uh, Look, let's hear that extract. It's, it's from a piece um, called Tracking. And it's about his daily walk down that long, unmade track that leads to Bottengoms. And it's read by David Holt. Lent is when I do more than walk my track. To the top and back again is a mile and a half of flinty travel, accompanied by birdsong. Also, should I be in my historical mood, by ghosts. Saxon farmers, medieval children, Georgian parsons, poor Victorian labourers, and the youthful versions of some of the old friends who sit before me in church. Who planted the twelve tall oaks just after Trafalgar? Who climbed the vast split oak just after Marston Moor? Who picked the bluebells, which are now just showing? Who lay in the hollows with whom? That would be telling. Footpaths lead to private experience, main roads to public happenings, which is why we are advised to stick to the narrow way. Let the high banks enfold you. Let the rain hollows splash you. Let the occasional fellow traveller give you no more than a nod, the pair of you being at your devotions. The rivulet side of Bottengom's track would have been animated by hedges and ditches in February, but that was long ago. Now the elder twists and tumbles, the hazels make forests, and the brambles impenetrable cages for rabbits. I love that, that extract. It just shows the continuum that Ronnie believed in. You can't be lonely with an outlook like that. Yeah. There, those people were all around him. Yeah. No linear time. No linear time. That's the great secret to eternal life, That's isn't it? it? And he was absolutely in the moment. And it was the gift of every day. He just thought it was a bonus. And Gail Hazel, you've been there. You went there and had tea with him. When we, was this? I did. Well, he was doing a reading, wasn't he? He was a doing a reading at a bookshop in Woodbridge and for us. It's quite a long time ago now. We were reissuing Adrian Bell's Corduroy, which, of course, is a record of his first year as a farm apprentice in 1920 in, in Suffolk. Suffolk. Yeah. And a friend of Ronnie. And a friend of Ronnie. Mm. We must have got in touch and asked if he'd, if he'd do a reading, and he invited us to tea. I remember a cat. I remember very, very fine china. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember I remember that. the brick floor. Yeah. Um, it was rather magical. And then he drove us to Woodbridge. Sorry. I drove. He, he navigated. Didn't drive, didn't he? No. he didn't drive. And he took us down back roads and byways. And, I mean, we went all the way to Woodbridge by lanes. Absolutely, you know, left here, right there, mm. straight on. Got there, bang on time. He proceeded to give the reading. Various subscribers came. And then we went out to dinner afterwards, and at 11 o'clock at night, he was still going strong. The thing I remember, actually, is just how many people came Mm. and how they all sort of responded to him. Mm. It was amazing, the sort of charisma Mm. that he had, Mm. and he was obviously sort of much loved in that district, wasn't Mm. he? Yes. There was more to Ronnie than just what we've talked about, isn't there? Because I I was so intrigued to read that he met Patricia Highsmith. Well, didn't just meet her. Well, no, I was, I was coming to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, the novelist, Patricia Highsmith, that was in one of the obituaries, that, the fact that he slept with yes, her. He and did. obviously she was lesbian. Which was the most yes. jaw-dropping yes. revelation. Yes, well, she moved to Suffolk and they became friends. And yeah. dear Pat, he used to say. And they had this fling. And I think it was research on both their parts. Sheer curiosity. Yes, yeah. yes, sheer curiosity, yes. <laughs> it was so safe because they were friends. And I think it's probably the most unlikely coupling in literature, isn't it? It felt like it when I read about it. It seemed entirely out of character with everything I'd read about him, which just shows I didn't understand him at all. Well, this is the thing. Ronnie was a very large figure within an an enigma, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to, I'm finding it hard, uh, to capture all the strands of it. 
because a lot of it was hidden. Yes. And it all goes into the writing. The writing is so light and so dense and so entwined. And, and he can go from the personal to the local to the global, past, present, future, all within a sentence. And you never know where he's going. It's constantly surprised. So the person that can write like that has had actually quite a lot of experience, I think. Yes, because you can make the mistake of thinking he's a kind of rural innocent and no. very far yes. from the truth. Yes. Yes. That's interesting in the, in the introduction he gives to The, the View in Winter, isn't it? Yeah. Like he says... The thing that he really wants to talk about is how when people get old that they're not supposed to be thinking about sex. Yes. yes. And that you think, yes. Ronnie, you think, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is this the other aspect, you know, because, yes. and then as he got older, he spoke more about his thoughts on sex yes. and sexuality. But it always seemed to me as if it was a sort of aberration. I couldn't quite connect what he was saying and the person that I still thought yes. that he was. But then more and more, like seeing the photo of him as a voluptuous youth. Yes. There's things yes. about him that I don't know. Yeah, the clue was there. Wasn't yes, it? the clue was there. Well, he was very physical and very sensual, yes. as well as being all these um, more detached things. He was absolutely in life. He loved life. And just to add to the confusion, um, in midlife, he became very strongly involved with the church. He did. And for a long time, I was rather annoyed with the Church of England because Ronnie, who could never say no, was, I felt, much put upon by the church. He began as a church warden. And then he, when he moved to Bottengombs, he became a lay reader for the three local parishes. And in fact, being Ronnie, he effectively ran the parishes. His sermons were to die for. Everybody wanted him to take their parents' funerals and children's christenings. Yes, you so can he did imagine. all that. Yeah. He did all that. And then he kept having to organise the retirement of vicars when they were 60. And he was 70 and 80 and 85. And I thought, what on earth's going on here? They were also pressing him to be ordained, which would have lost even more books. But he, he resisted that? He resisted that. He didn't say no, he just didn't answer. Hmm. Uh, but he gave a huge amount of his time to the church, which he loved. But I was just biased towards the books, and I thought that's another book gone. But then, view from Wormingford. Yes. This is what happened. It all came good and yes. better. Because, this is column for the church because, times. Because in 1993, he was invited to compile a column for the uh, Church Times newspaper. And everything Ronnie had written virtually up to then had been published, so he hadn't had time to keep a diary. So this, over the next, till 2017, became a weekly diary, extended to over a million words. And this, for me, is his masterpiece, because it, by this point he has poetry and philosophy absolutely in his head, and he can spin it out in a way that nobody had done before. It's magical, isn't it, Julia? Completely. Um, it is that. It's being able to stretch in all different directions as if it's all matter of fact. Yes. Mm -hmm. To quote from the ancients, to quote from the yes. Bible, to talk about modern day things yes. without any, any sort of drawing of breath. Yes. Which he could only do when he was old. Yes. Okay. So, yes, because it is all just very woven into it. Yes, The it warp is. and weft of those pieces. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're lived. Yeah. And so I, I love the Church of England now for, for that, because <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have happened. But I'll tell you one funny story. Uh, I was trying to get him out of all this weekly labour, and so I manoeuvred for him to be made a canon of Bury St Edmund's Cathedral, thinking, well, that's a nice long way away, and he can't drive, and so he'll be sort of elevated to this post, and it will be give but he'll him never much, have to go there. much more time for his books. <laughs> and then I went to see him uh, one time, and he said, oh, marvellous news, dear. They've invited me to be a canon of Bury Cathedral. And I said, that's fantastic news, Ronnie, and now you can retire as a lay reader and just do that. He said... Oh, no, I'll do it too. Oh, so so I've given work. him even more work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And those pieces, some of those pieces, that's what the latest book was about, the the wonderful book Mm. that was published just before he died and was just a a huge success over the Christmas just gone, hasn't it? Next to Nature. Yes, it's a, a wonderful production from John Murray, Nick Davis. And Nick had always wanted to do a book with Ronnie and finally he could do it and he chose those pieces himself and then he had this idea that uh, it, it would be book would be divided into the months and then he would get 12 people who admired Ronnie to introduce each month and Richard maybe to introduce the whole book it came out in the end of October and was an immediate bestseller fantastic reviews and it had by January I think five reprints was that all a bit unexpected I mean I appreciate it, it was he was, un- he was a big writer it, it but was it, it was a huge success yes, it, wasn't it because he, he had sort of faded from view his books weren't really selling apart from Aikenfield it was a surprise but it sort of seized the moment because after Covid and all the terrible news yeah. of, of the world where it's going Ronnie is just reassuring I think he, he, he tells us that just to be alive is wonderful when obviously he was fading Mm. Well, becoming more, how how would you describe it? You saw him all the time, kind of becoming more detached and well, living inside when, his own when head. When we introduced him to the doctor, when he was coming up to ninety five in two thousand seventeen, the doctors immediately slapped him with a dementia diagnosis, having known nothing about him. Anyway, he was given that, so we then we had to keep him away from the authorities. We felt so a group of us to keep him at home gradually took more and more responsibility, and this was really the most wonderful thing because he'd always had a circle of what he called dear ones. And he had this fabulous circle towards the end of friends, really. One or two with nursing experience. And as the tasks of the day, looking after Ronnie, got more and more complicated and more and more time-consuming, it all blended in beautifully. Ronnie gave up his independence and he became quite a dependent person, having to be washed and helped to the chair. But the whole point of the exercise was to get him to the chair and to open a book so that he could be read to. Mm. He'd have a glass of sherry and then be read to. And when I read to him, he'd say, oh, that's rather good, dear. Who wrote that? And I said, it's you, That's Ronnie. one of yours, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a delightful way to see out your final days. Yes. I can't imagine anything nicer. So was he aware of the success of the book? He, Not really. he, you, you could give him good news constantly because he didn't really hold it yes. in his head, or mostly didn't. But he understood when he sold his 10,000th copy, he got that. And he was just contented think what religious people would call a state of grace really and he had his hundredth birthday he did we had a party the choir came and sang and we had a a cake in the shape of next to nature it was wonderful i mean lynn our series producer here she said to me that must have been a bit like reading your own obituaries actually celebrating yes. hundred. was it a bit like that yeah uh, well we we read the obit- the, 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 re- <laughs> the reviews <laughs> the plaudits, again, the again and again the plaudits again and again he, he actually loved what the contributors said in the book he, he actually knew his own worth didn't he julia mm, uh, he did, he did. Yeah. when i told him that he should have a plaque in Poets Corner, he wasn't completely surprised by that. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, you introduced in the book October. Yes. You've got a little bit of it for us? It's the bit that, yes, that I think is very close to him. Whenever I sat facing Ronnie at his elegant little table in the corner of the room, close to the crammed bookcases, I was always startled by the way his face changed. At one moment I saw a fragile man growing older year by year, and in the next I saw a boy filled with the laughter and energy of youth. So true. Mm. And I think that is, yes, it's Mm. close to something that he kept all his life. Mm. Shall we finish with a final extract? I've got one from a piece called My Little Owls, and David Holt 
who very kindly voiced the extract we've um, heard already, he describes it as a kind of song of joy, where Ronnie describes the many simple things that made his life so complete and so happy. Certain happiness. Pear blossom. 6am tea. Matins were a dozen in the chancel. Making my sweet pea wigwam. Seeing strangers pass. Watching the manes of the horses on the hill being caught in the wind. Reading Psalm 96. Eating a miser's meal. Peau de jour. A curling crust, cheese ends and a wizened apple. Loving my little cat. Not going to the party. Remembering the garrets in Cambridge. Seeing the boundary ditch full of water. A whisky at bedtime. Catching sight of my little owls in the blackthorn where they have always been. The April happiness of finding so much promising. To have it all before one. Though not to count the days, but to let them bud and open. The weather to try everything on from gale to serenity. The pages of the current book to fall into chapters. The man from the British Museum to show Shakespeare in a handful of artefacts. And George Herbert to show us the church as only he can. Very nice. Thank you very much. That was just such a delightful meander through his life. Thank you. I think it was, it was perfect. Thank you. How nice. Now, I know you've got reading recommendations, and indeed we've got another book lover's day out. Uh, But first... Slightly Foxed is a small publishing house in East London. It was founded 20 years ago by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood, and the team began publishing a quarterly magazine for literary nonconformists all about lost and forgotten books. The contributors have always been unusual, and while some are distinguished writers, journalists or academics, others come from very different walks of life. Two decades later, the magazine has a global readership, but it still loves finding new readers. It's posted out four times a year to more than 60 countries, and every year the team also reissue out-of-print books they feel deserve a new audience. The annual subscription is very reasonably priced and it gives you free access to the digital archive of all the back issues and that's over a thousand articles to explore. You can sign up for a subscription at foxcourtly.com or if you'd rather talk to a real person, ring the London office on 020-7033-0258. That's 020-7033-0258. Thanks. So, Gail, you've got another of our um, days out for book lovers, and it's John Clare's, the poet John Clare's house in Cambridgeshire. Yes, and I have to be completely honest and say that I have not been, but John Clare, rural poet, of whom Ronald Blythe was immensely fond, was born six miles north of Peterborough in a village called Helpston, the son of a farm labourer, grew up in terrible poverty, became a labourer, became a pot boy in the local public house. He was a gardener at Burley House for a bit, joined the militia, lived with the gypsies for a while, and he wrote poetry. The most famous, I suppose, is probably A Shepherd's Calendar. But he was also, he went mad. And in mid-19th century, he was confined to an asylum from which, memorably, he escaped and walked back to his home in search of his first love, who had actually died. Uh, Anyhow, he was sent back to the asylum and he lived there for the rest of his life. And this was a very long time. Very long time. He was born in 1793 and died in 1864. The house in which he was born was bought by a trust 
and has been restored using traditional building methods. The garden's been planted with varieties that he would have known and it holds exhibitions as a bookshop and a cafe and it's open on Mondays and Thursdays from 10 till 3. There's also a fascinating page where you can follow his walk from Essex to Helpston and it just looks a lovely place to go. And the website, clarecottage.org. That's right. Have a look. I haven't been myself. No, this is Cambridgeshire, isn't it? So this is the next well, door just, county. Just north well, of Peterborough, so not far from Stamford. And not far from Suffolk. For those people who aren't familiar with yes. English geography. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Look, before we get on to book recommendations, I haven't asked you and Hazel what's happening at Slightly Foxed. What's going on? Well, a, a lot of reading, as usual, reading of books to see if they will do as Slightly Foxed editions. Now, last time I asked you this, I said, have you found any? And you said, no. Have you found any now? No, we have we now have found. Actually, yes, we've had a bit of luck lately. We, we've found two, which we'd very much like to do. We're in dispute about a third. Right. Is this over rights? No, no, not about rights. Oh, you, um, between you two about We the have third. to agree. Mm. That, uh-huh. And uh, I'm not going to mention uh, the name of the book, but... I enjoyed it. Hazel, as she politely put it, was equivocal. Ah. So we've For asked... Hazel, that's quite strong yes. and condemnatory, <laughs> isn't it? So we've asked the girls <laughs> to read it and see what a younger generation thinks right. of it. Right. But yes, we've got, we've got a lovely book coming out in the winter called Pig Ignorant by Nicholas Fisk, who a, was a children's writer, children's and sci-fi. And it's an enchanting account of him growing up in London during the war as a teenager. And it's got a sort of swing and a zest to it. And we've commissioned an illustrator. So that was, that was a good find. And we've got a long list of books, basically. This is Anybody who's got any suggestions, always welcome. <sighs> I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that we're sort of just sort of boiling up to our 20th anniversary. Yes, we mentioned this last yes, time, didn't I'd we? I'd say it's simmering happening. rather than boiling. Simmering, yes, yes. But sort of getting some ideas about how we might celebrate it next year. Planning a party. Oh, this yeah. is good. We like a party. We love yeah. a party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that brings us to book recommendations, I think, while I ponder what that party might be like. Do you want to start us off, Gail? Well, I'm going to mention two books, actually. These are unashamed plugs, but okay. I do spend most of my time reading Slightly Fox stuff, so there's... Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so the first one, which we've just brought out, the second volume of Adrian Bell's Countryman's Notebook, which was published in the East Anglian Press weekly for 30 years. Adrian Bell, of course, and I should, there's a podcast, we made a podcast about it, There didn't is we? indeed, yes. And the other book, which is our summer Slightly Fox edition, is a book about fly fishing, ostensibly. I have no interest in fly fishing. Okay. I have never been fly fishing. I'm unlikely ever to go. But the husband of a friend pressed it on me a few years ago and said, you will love this. And I did. And it's my Luke Jennings, who rather bizarrely was the author of the Killing Eve series. That's but a surprise combination. That's a real surprise. Yeah. He is in his late 60s. He developed a passion for fishing as a boy. And he's fished ever since. This is the story of his father mentoring him uh, a man called Robert Nairak, his life at prep school, his life at Ampleforth, his life pike fishing in the backwaters of London. It's enchanting and it takes you to the most magical places in the English countryside, lakes that are hidden and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. And Gail, the name? It's called Blood Knots. A blood knot is, is a, a means of attaching one piece of fishing line to another, apparently, but it's also about relationships. Julia? 
The one that I'm reading, with, which is interesting in a way that it connects with Ronnie Blythe, is the Annie Arnaud book, The Years, the French writer who got the Nobel Prize for Literature just, just recently. And that is that she's, she's telling her life story, but just spinning this way and that all the way through with different associations, the facts going to the emotion and the emotion going back to some, but facts that are unexpected. It's absolutely not a chronicle. And I think it's a very exciting book. Thank you. Ian? Well, I'm going to choose, I think, the greatest novel by Wilkie Collins. Ronnie loved it, and so did I. Which one? Lots of people have read The Moonstone and The Woman in White, but my favourite by far is No Name. Oh, yeah, I love that book. Um, (laughs) Partly set in Alborough, and it is about two sisters who are in very comfortable circumstances briefly and then their parents die in in tragic circumstances and they discover that the parents just didn't happen to be legally married a so, huge issue so no time. name means they have no rights to any of their inheritance and the inheritance goes to a branch of the family which hates them so it's how they actually re-establish their rights it's an important book, but it's also an absolutely gripping book. It's a, it's a total page turn. You just can't stop reading it. We, so it's a long night. We've had an article in Slightly Foxed. Have you? It. I can't tell you offhand which issue. But it's in there. But it, it'll be in the index, yes. Oh. It's a very surprising book, isn't yes. it, for the time mm. that it was mm. written? Bad title, but a wonderful book. Yes. Mm. Now you're making me want to read that all over again. Hazel. The book that um, I've chosen couldn't really be further away from what we've been talking about. It's Anne Wilson's autobiography called Confessions. And, um, well, there are an awful lot of things in this book because it takes him right up to his 70s, sort of the usual things, school and boarding school and so on. But in a way, it's about his marriages, about his parents' marriage and about his own, in a way, quite strange marriage. When he was a student at Oxford, he married Catherine Duncan Jones, who was a a Renaissance expert 10 years older than him, and she became pregnant. and, And I suppose it's in a way, it's about the business of sort of living with someone from whom you're, in a way, quite separate. Um, But it's also about his parents, Norman, who was a sort of brilliant um, potter who became managing director of Wedgwood. You know, he was a sort of 50 cigarettes a day man down the pub. He preferred, really, preferred his male friends to his female friends. A raconteur, yes. Terrible anecdotes. Endless, endless anecdotes. And he married Jean, who was, you know, rather sort of fragile. She'd had an unhappy childhood, and she'd been at Cheltenham Ladies' College. And she was, in a sense, rather sort of genteel, and it's really about the sort of dynamic between them. He was a sort of spectator of this marriage, which, which stuck together, but was just unhappy. But anyway, there's a lot in it about his travels, about his lecturing at Oxford for a while. I think he calls himself a practising Anglican with periodic waves of doubt and Roman, and Roman fever. <laughs> and at one point, he decided to train for the priesthood when he was in Oxford. But the story of Wedgwood was very sad in that Finally, uh, Norman was managing director. They were making huge amounts of money in America in the 60s, but then it was decided to float Wedgwood on the stock market. They actually took over all the smaller potteries, and which went out of business, and eventually they went out of business, really. Mm. But anyway, Aaron Wilson um, eventually found his sort of metier as a journalist, really. I mean, I know he's written many, many books, but he obviously most enjoyed his journalism. Thank you, everyone. Um, 
that's it for this episode at least uh, Ian, Julia, thanks so much for being with us thank you Thank you. as always you'll find all the books and writers we mentioned today in the show notes or on the Fox website foxcourtly.com you will also find all sorts of good things on there books and gifts as well as forms to contact the team here and indeed to subscribe to the Quarterly magazine which we hope you will feel tempted to try we also hope you've enjoyed this episode the last one we made about Jean Rees so the highest number of listens we've ever had and from every corner of the world. And as you can imagine, we were really delighted to imagine thousands of you listening to that. So um, thank you. We'll be back with another one in July. Until then, thank you for listening and for joining us on another literary trek off the beaten track.